And now, Lord, as we come to your word, remember that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text for us, that we might not only see it, but that we might understand it, and that his presence within us would convict us to act in accordance with what you reveal to us in your word. May Christ be glorified, his name magnified greatly during this time. May we see our desperate need for him, and may we be conformed more thoroughly to his image for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, but you may also want to put your thumb in 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, and we're going to be kind of doing a brief overview of 1 Kings chapter 1 and seeing how that connects to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Today is the day that Christians historically have referred to as Palm Sunday, and you may know, you may have realized that I don't normally preach uh, a Palm Sunday sermon, at least not every year, and that's because the event... Uh, generally speaking, isn't seen as being as significant as uh, the birth of Christ or the crucifixion or uh, especially the resurrection of Christ, which we will be looking at and celebrating next week, although really we celebrate it every week, don't we? Uh, and yet, while Palm Sunday isn't nearly as significant as you know Christmas or uh, Easter Sunday, it is a great error for us to think that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday, isn't significant at all. In fact, there's only a handful of things that you'll find in all four of the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this is one of them. Uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is one of the things that's covered in all four of the gospel narratives. Uh, both Matthew and Mark actually tell us about a conversation that took place on the road to Jerusalem. And Mark tells us in chapter 10 that as uh, they were on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus specifically tells the disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Matthew tells us the same thing, the, the, the same, uh, basically the same warning that Jesus gave to the disciples, the same message that he gave to them about why they were going to Jerusalem What's interesting in this is that Jesus uh, has specifically told them why they're going to Jerusalem, and yet it's like the lights are on and nobody's home with the disciples. Uh, because another conversation takes place immediately after he says this that shows us how ignorant his disciples were, how, how lacking in understanding they were, even though Jesus had just told them, we're going to Jerusalem so I can die. So there's this conversation that takes place between the disciples uh, that Mark tells us about in chapter 10, verses 35 to 41. We read this. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. By the way, it was their mother with them, uh, according to Matthew. So uh, these two mama's boys come up to Jesus, and we read this. They came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we're able and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
And then we read this in verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. So James and John are jockeying for political positions of power, and the other ten are indignant because they were beat to the punch by these two brothers and their mother. Uh, But keep in mind how near this is to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, these guys have been following Jesus for three to, to three and a half years or so, and all along, it's been with this idea that they had, that they didn't get from Jesus, that he had come to set up an earthly kingdom wherein Jesus would free the Israelites from Roman occupation and oppression. And so even when Jesus tells them as clearly as he possibly could that he's going to be killed, but that he's going to be resurrected, they've got these preconceived notions that, that, are, that are, are preventing them from hearing Jesus. They're, they're like wax in their ears that prevent them from hearing and understanding what Jesus said. And so in Mark's account of this conversation, we see that the conversation concludes with Jesus saying in verse 45, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now you might say that that statement, that one sentence, sets the whole context for Palm Sunday. This is the very purpose for which Jesus began this journey into Jerusalem, to give his life a ransom for many. So this sets the stage for what has come to be known as Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Let's look at the text as Mark records it in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, uh, and then we'll consider the implications of it for our lives. So looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, we read, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. As we consider what's going on in this passage, it kind of hits a high point when you see the people worshiping and rejoicing and singing. But what we must understand is that things are not always as they seem to be. Because the people who are rejoicing and singing as he enters into Jerusalem, tragically, are the same people who will be shouting crucify him by the end of the week. You see, like the disciples, these people who were surrounding Jesus on his donkey, had some preconceived notions of their own. Expectations that caused a lot of excitement and emotion when he came into the city. People get very drawn by emotion. People love emotion. And there are some churches, uh, you're probably familiar with the fact that there are some churches that will do everything they can to make it a very emotional experience. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for emotion. God gave us not only minds, but he gave us hearts, uh, not only to think, but to feel. So there is a place for emotions, but it is a huge mistake to think that having an emotional peak is the essence of, or the, the fuel that propels the Christian journey. It is not. 
it's not. But these people are, are very excited. They're very worked up. They're, they're ecstatic as he comes into the city. And I listened to, to one Palm Sunday sermon this week in which the preacher considered the possibility that nobody around even realized that Jesus had uh, ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, I don't know. If you know me, you know I'm not a, a real big fan of speculating uh, when it comes to reading and studying the Bible. Uh, it doesn't say that nobody realized he was on a donkey. In fact, I think it's probably far, far more likely that people did realize that Jesus rode in on a donkey. If nothing else, people would have had that expectation from Zechariah 9, uh, which said that that's how he would arrive, how the Messiah would arrive. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But, you know, while it's, while it's probably uh, true uh, that it was a little bit unusual for a king to enter into a city riding on the back of a donkey, uh, it wasn't actually entirely unprecedented. First Kings chapter 1 tells us about how at the end of David's life, his, his health is in steep decline. And how his oldest son, Adonijah, tried to take advantage of the fact that David was basically dying. And how he tried to use David's weakness as an opportunity for himself, for Adonijah, to take the throne. Uh, we read that he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. I mean, that is usually how a king comes in, right? Chariots. Surrounded by, by an army, right? That, that's how we would expect a king to come into a city. That's how Adonijah planned on coming into the city. Uh, so Adonijah starts schmoozing with some of David's more trusted confidants. And he publicly invites uh, all the men of Judah, all of his brothers, all of his father's servants to join him. But then we're told this. We're told he did not invite Nathan the prophet Beniah, the mighty men, and Solomon, his brother. Those people were left out. We read in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So now come, please let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon." So Bathsheba ends up going uh, to see David on his deathbed, basically, and, and she says to him, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Now, behold, Adonijah is king, and now, my lord, the king, you do not know it. What Adonijah did know was that Solomon was the one his father had chosen to be his successor. But Adonijah was the oldest. And so he used the situation to his advantage, or he tried to. But while Bathsheba's there, the prophet Nathan comes in and he says to David, My lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today, and has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, Long live King Adonijah. Now, of course, David had never approved this. He had never said anything about Adonijah taking the throne as his successor. The son, Adonijah, was leading a revolt against him, carrying out his will, carrying out Adonijah's will, instead of his father's will. David had made a promise to Bathsheba and Solomon that Solomon would be the one to be the successor. And he had never retracted that promise. So David instructs him on what to do. He says, have my son Solomon, here's the key part, have my son Solomon ride on my own mule or donkey and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over, king, over Israel and Judah. 
And so they go away from his presence and they do exactly as he has instructed. And if you go down to verse 40 in 1 Kings chapter 1, we read, All the people went up after him, after Solomon that is, and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. So this was good news, right? The rightful king was, was in his place, but this wasn't good news for everybody. It certainly was not good news for Adonijah or his supporters who had committed treason. Uh, Adonijah ends up being put to death for his betrayal. But at this point, what, uh, maybe what you're asking is what this has to do with Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And what I want you to see here is that this record tells us of how David's royal lineage was established and how it was announced. There hadn't been a king before David who'd had sons or, or relatives uh, to succeed him on the throne of Israel. But what we see here is that this lineage is established and announced. Uh, it's established by Solomon, the king, riding in on the back of a donkey. It's entirely possible that this was actually reenacted throughout future generations whenever a king was appointed over Israel. Uh, some, some commentators do present a very convincing uh, argument for that. But what we have to see here is that when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, by doing so, he's making a very specific claim as to who he is. He's claiming to be uh, David's rightful son, Israel's rightful king. By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's identifying himself as their Lord, as their king. He's identifying himself as the promised son of David. And we also know that this is how it had to be, that his, his entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey was foretold by Zechariah. Uh, this is actually part of the argument, by the way, that, uh, that Israel had made the king riding a donkey uh, for his coronation a custom, a tradition whenever a king took the throne. Uh, but Zechariah had prophesied of this event hundreds of years earlier, writing in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." In other words, this king would rule over the whole earth. And that would start with him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, these are, these are all wonderful, wonderful passages, and they re reveal the reasons that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey rather than maybe on the back of a horse. That, that would be more, more kingly in terms of how the world would expect a king to act, uh, or, or in a chariot. You know, like the Egyptians, or, or maybe even on the back of an elephant like Alexander the Great was known to do. But I also want us to see something that is very unique about this situation, about this passage in Mark when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And to see this event in light of the norm in Jesus' ministry a couple months ago, we studied the passage that recorded Jesus' first miracle, and that was uh, turning water into wine, right, at the wedding in Cana. Uh, and let's remember that he performed that miracle in such a way that only a select few knew what he had done. Uh, when Mary had asked him to do something, what, what did he say? When they were out of wine and Mary asked him, hey, you know, can you do something about it? What did he say? He said, my hour has not come. And so he performed a miracle so privately that the head waiter of the wedding festival thought that the bridegroom of the, of the wedding had been responsible for it. And so he says to the bridegroom of the wedding, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So even the head waiter had no idea that Jesus had done this. That's how private this miracle was that Jesus performed. And for the most part, this is uh, the pattern 
that we see throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry. Much of it was done very privately, secretly sometimes even. Generally speaking, Jesus tried to avoid opportunities to gain a lot of attention. He spent the majority of his ministry in remote areas of Galilee or in the wilderness. I mean, if he had wanted to draw a crowd to himself, he would have gone into Jerusalem where all the people were. We read of Jesus proclaiming himself to be Lord of the Sabbath in the 12th chapter of Matthew, a claim which was followed by Jesus healing a man whose hand was withered uh, in the synagogue and doing so on the Sabbath. And of course, this, this so enraged the Pharisees that we would read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And what was Jesus' response to that? I mean, he... He's God. Uh, He he knows what's going on in their hearts. Remember what we saw at the end of John chapter 2, that he knows what's in a man's heart. So he's aware of what they're plotting, uh, and he's God. He could just strike them all dead instantly if he chose to, uh, and it would have been perfectly just. Uh, I mean, they had just witnessed this incredible miracle that nobody could come up with, with any other explanation for. It was obviously an act of God that Jesus had performed right in front of them. And rather than convincing them that they need to listen to what this guy Jesus has to say, what did it do? It ended up hardening their hearts against him, even more than their hearts were already hardened. So he would have been completely just to have judged them right on the spot as they plot to assassinate him. He could have, because he's God, he could have just judged them on the spot. But instead, we read this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to tell who he was. Now, you might say to that, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why would he do that? Why, why would he withdraw, first of all? But why also would he not want these people that he's healed to reveal his identity? What's that all about? And Matthew actually answers that question in the verses that follow, 17 to 19. He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he would not attempt to draw as many people to him as he possibly could. He wouldn't even hang out in the streets. He went out into the wilderness. And many times throughout Jesus' ministry, that's exactly what we see. We see him doing this very thing, withdrawing from the masses, avoiding them intentionally even. But Matthew, uh, Matthew's testimony of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and Mark's testimony of Jesus coming into Jerusalem tell a very different story. As he rides into Jerusalem, He does so in the most visible, most attention-drawing, most public way he possibly could. Keep in mind that the city of Jerusalem didn't just have the regular citizens and the inhabitants of the city present. No, the city was overflowing with actually hundreds of thousands of people who had made the journey to Jerusalem for the annual celebration of the Passover I mean, there are ancient historians that tell us that on Passover, uh, for, the, for the Passover festivals, they would sometimes have a quarter million lambs to be sacrificed that week. That's just a, a crazy number, but it also reflects how many people were there. The great preacher and theologian, R.C. Sproul, explained the normal secrecy of Jesus' ministry this way. He said, quote, We have to guess as to why Jesus insisted on secrecy regarding his messianic vocation. And the best guess is that he understood that the people had an incorrect understanding of what the Messiah would do. The popular hope and expectation was that the Messiah would be a great warrior who would overthrow the oppression of the Roman Empire and liberate the people of Israel. End quote. 
And this appears to be right on target. I mean, the false expectation that people have for Jesus is seen not only in the disciples on the road to Jerusalem uh, as they're arguing for who's going to have positions of power at Jesus' side uh, before they get to Jerusalem, but we also see it in the fact that everyone had false expectations for Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem uh, in all the gospel narratives. We see that all these people who are surrounding him have false expectations for him. I mean, think about this. We see this all over the place in all of, uh, throughout the gospel narratives. Uh, when John the Baptist even uh, was imprisoned, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask if Jesus was going to do what the, mess, what the Messiah was, was supposed to do. Is he really the one or are we supposed to wait for another person who's going to do what the Messiah is supposed to do? Why did he do that? Why did he send his disciples to ask Jesus these questions because even John the Baptist had some false expectations for Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist was, was in jail, uh, imprisoned by a Roman, by the way, and he thought that the Messiah had come to bring freedom, to overthrow the Roman Empire, to set the captives free in a literal physical sense. And, of course, John the Baptist himself was a captive, in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and immediately after that we read, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew. Withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And this is the pattern that we see throughout Jesus' ministry. He counters these false expectations that people might have for him by withdrawing. His ministry was very private, but that is certainly not the case here in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, as Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passover week. He made it as public, as visible as he possibly could. And I'm convinced that there are a lot of really good reasons for that. Above all, he, he knew what was going to happen. He knew that his hour had come. And, and that's, that's the, the, the main reason I think it's made as public as he can make it. That's why he didn't want it to be public before. That's why when Mary said, hey, can you do something? He said, hey, my hour has not come. In, in John 2, 4, he tells Mary, my hour has not yet come. In John 7, 30, uh, it says they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not come. John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury and he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then we get to John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus knew that his hour had come. And knowing that the hour had come, he was fearless. He knew that the will of the Father would be done, and he knew that the will of the Father would not and could not be thwarted. Unlike Adonijah, who pursued his own will instead of his Father's, Jesus submitted himself completely to the will of the Father, and nobody could stop the fulfillment of the Father's will from being fulfilled. In Matthew 26, the chief priests and elders were comically gathered and plotting to kill Jesus, but they ended up deciding against it. We read in, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 5, uh, they, they say this to each other. They, they say, well, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So they think that they're going to wait beyond the Passover week to assassinate Jesus. Uh, think again, fellas. No, the, the, the hour had come and they weren't the ones to decide it. Their will was, we're going to wait. God's will was, no, you're not. God's sovereign will could not be thwarted. The hour had come. And so Jesus, who submitted himself to the will of the Father, was fearless because he knew it was the Father's will. Do you know, friends, that you can face any and every circumstance in life, every trial, every hardship, every pain, even death, with that same confidence? 
God was not only sovereign over the hour of Jesus' death, but he's sovereign over the fiercest and the most frightening trials that any of us face. And speaking from experience, there's no greater comfort than knowing that God is sovereign. I'm convinced that another reason Jesus made uh, this, this entry into Jerusalem so public is because hundreds of thousands of Jews and Gentiles being in the city uh, prevented anybody from ever saying uh, that the crucifixion happened in such a private manner uh, that it's open for dispute, that historians have room to dispute that, that he really even came into Jerusalem, that he really died uh, that week of the Passover. I mean, it's laughable considering how many witnesses there were. For anyone to assert that it didn't really happen exactly as the Bible records it because there were so many witnesses. I mean, think about it. We're talking about first century documents. We're talking about people who saw what happened and the idea that, uh, that these, these texts were circulated that were falsely reporting what happened. I mean, there were literally hundreds of thousands of witnesses to say otherwise. So, of course, they recorded it accurately. The idea that he didn't is, is, is ridiculous, or the idea that it's not recorded accurately is, is absolutely ridiculous. The idea that Jesus didn't really die, but that uh, you know, he was just beaten really bad, beaten unconscious, but he recovered in the tomb, ridiculous. The idea that, that somebody else, maybe Judas, took Jesus' place on the cross and that Jesus escaped to go live in France or wherever, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. As J.C. Ryle once noted, quote, he came to Jerusalem to die, and he desired that all Jerusalem should know it, end quote. And for that to happen, his entry was made as public and as visible as he could possibly make it. And, and, and we consider how he was received into the city with, with all this excitement. People are surrounding him and laying their, their cloaks and palm branches on the road before him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, that's, that's a quote that's derived from the Psalms, which shows that they realized that this was the fulfillment of God's promises. Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They realize what Jesus is saying. The message is made loud and clear, and part of that is the donkey. Jesus uh, choosing to ride into town on a donkey. Now the word Hosanna means save us now. Uh, But one commentator does note that over time, Hosanna became less associated with a plea for help, uh, save me now, and more of a shout of praise, uh, now I am saved. Uh, Either way, either way, they, they weren't expecting to be saved in the way that God had intended, right? They, they weren't about to be saved in the way they had expected. It wasn't a cry for revival, as they shout out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not a cry of revival. If, if anything, it's just more of a political slogan that they are reciting and singing. They thought that they were going to be free from Roman occupation, Roman oppression. But Jesus actually never had any intention of giving them that kind of liberty, that kind of freedom. He never set out to free them from the Romans. And the people did figure that out by the end of the week. It took them a few days, but they figured out that Jesus isn't here to set us free from the Romans. So rather than rallying behind him during the week of the Passover, Jesus wasn't interested in them rallying behind him. Instead, he heals people and he teaches in the courtyard at the temple. And so by the end of the week, those same people who were rejoicing over his entry into Jerusalem would be calling for Jesus to be put to death. And they'd be calling for an imprisoned insurrectionist to be set free and handed over to them instead of Jesus. And so the people, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they're saying the right thing, Hosanna, save us now, or, or, or now we're free, whichever. But they're saying this for the wrong reasons. They wanted to be freed from earthly oppression. 
But Jesus came to do something much more amazing and much more wonderful than to free them from Roman occupation, something much more liberating than that. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to free his people spiritually, not from earthly bondage, but from spiritual bondage. There's an enormous emphasis these days, I'm sure you all know it, on overcoming oppression on overcoming earthly bondage, oftentimes in the name of Christianity. You have some really prominent voices out there that have been greatly influenced by a heretical school of thought called liberation theology, saying that the gospel that we preach, which is, by the way, the same gospel that the apostles preached, is truncated. It's the word they use for it. It's truncated. That means it's insufficient. It's not enough. These are people who claim to be Christians. And they're looking to fields like sociology and anthropology and psychology to define cultural sins, systemic sins that you and I commit just because we exist. Maybe because of the color of our skin, maybe because of our gender, maybe because of our, you know, our, our individual sexual preferences. We become oppressors because of who we are. And of course, that's entirely, entirely unbiblical. The oppression that we are accused of isn't the biblical definition of oppression, and the justice that they're calling for doesn't fit with the biblical definition of justice. In fact, it actually calls for what the Bible would call injustice. They're calling for injustice. They're calling for us to to be partial to one another rather than to exercise impartiality, which is how we're told to to behave toward one another from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And yet, as you look at the statistics, none of this should really surprise us because the church has essentially lost her voice in the culture. It, It started happening probably mostly in the 80s. It gathered up speed in the 90s with the with the pragmatic movement. In the early 2000s, it kept picking up steam with the emergent movement, but it's to the point that it's not even unusual today to see churches calling good evil and, and evil good and saying that our nation should adapt this or that political position because that's part of loving our neighbors. It's all a political ploy cloaked in Christian language. And those of us who haven't been swept up in this movement are grieved, aren't we? We're talking about people who 10 years ago were were solid teachers. And now they're saying, oh, you need to be woke. You need to practice partiality. We wonder, what has happened to our culture? We wonder, where has the church's voice gone? And, And how can we get it back? I'll say this much. The church will not regain her voice in the culture by echoing what the culture is saying. Let me say that again. The church will not regain her voice in the culture by echoing what the culture is saying. We're not going to woo them or win them with worldliness. That is never how it's worked. That's fruit of the pragmatic church movement of the 90s. We won't win the world by cloaking worldly ideologies and philosophies in Christian language. No, our mission is actually far more simple than that. Our mission is simply this, to preach Christ and Him crucified. We must continue to proclaim faithfully the pure, undefiled message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone alone and do so with the boldness and confidence in God's sovereignty that Jesus had as he's riding into Jerusalem. That it's the Father's will that we do these things. And he's sovereign over whatever happens as a result of our work. So yes, we we can pray for revival. Yes, we, we should pray for a revival. Of course we want that. 
But we must want revival for the right reason. Not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of Christ's glory. See, see, it's easy, and you might even say it's natural, to desire revival so that we can have some kind of personal benefit from it, right? So that we don't have to be confronted with the perversity and the lewdness and, and the disgusting things that the culture puts before us on a daily basis. It's easy to want to return to the way that things once were when Christians were uh, accepted, uh, tolerated, and maybe even Christian values were embraced even by lost people. It's easy to say, well, those were the days. Yeah, they were lost, but they had Christian values. What I'm saying is that if we pray for revival, when we pray for revival, it cannot be about us. It cannot be about us. It cannot be about politics. It can't be about political influence. Let us desire the salvation of of our neighbors, out of love for them, of course. That's, that's, that's loving your neighbor, desiring their salvation, praying for their salvation. But there's one primary reason for us to pray for a revival in this country, and that is so that Christ would be glorified in the salvation of his people. It's not about us. It's not about us. That's, that's what the people who are surrounding Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem, that, that's the mentality that they have. This is about us being freed. It's not about us at all. If there's any preconceived notion that we have about Jesus which causes us to think that it's about something other than his glory, we need to repent. We need to repent of whatever that preconceived notion is. People had false preconceived notions about Jesus on that day when he rode into Jerusalem. Even his disciples did. And people today still have false preconceived notions about Jesus. His purpose in riding into Jerusalem was not to free his people from some kind of tyranny, from an earthly oppression, from discomfort in this life, or even from poverty in this life. And you hear all these, these things being proclaimed, that Jesus came to make us rich if you just have enough faith, or that Jesus came so that you can be healthy if you just have enough faith. All these people had false preconceived notions about Jesus. And you can see all these reasons, all these, all these preconceived notions that people still have today. But Jesus did not enter into Jerusalem for the Passover week so that you can get rich, so that you can be healthy, so that you can have a, a more comfortable or even a more peaceful life with other people. Now, he said in this life you will be, there, there will be trouble. But have joy because I've overcome the world. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. The right reason for anyone to call out, Hosanna, save, save us now, save me now, is because they realize that the greatest problem that they face is not material. It's spiritual. They realize that they've sinned, and they realize that even the, the smallest sin requires a full outpouring of justice, of God's wrath. You don't want justice. Nobody wants justice. Man's greatest problem is that all we deserve is justice. Man's greatest problem is that the justice of God convicts him, and that if God were to give him justice, it would send him to hell, send the person to hell forever. No, when we cry out, Lord, save me now, it should be because we realize that we need to be saved from God's wrath, his just, holy wrath. We cry out, Hosanna, Lord, save me, because we need to be saved from that, from his wrath. Because we need mercy. We need somebody to stand in our place to bear the wrath that we have earned through our sin. And that is what Jesus came into Jerusalem to do. Not as a victim. Not as a martyr. 
Not as an unwilling participant. No, he submitted himself to the Father's will voluntarily and willfully and with joy. Jesus came to Jerusalem to bear the wrath of God on behalf of all who would repent and believe in him. The sins of his people were credited to Jesus and the perfect righteousness of Jesus was credited, it was imputed to us. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. But on the third day, he rose again to prove that his sacrifice was sufficient, to prove that his work of redemption was done. And he's now ascended into heaven where he reigns at the right hand of the Father. He is the king with no successor. He is the king who will live and reign forever and ever. And in all these things, he has manifested his glory and his grace, his love and his long-suffering. Friends, let us cry out to God for salvation, for, for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our families, our friends, for the culture around us. But let us live in light of the confident hope that while Jesus rode humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey bringing peace, he will return. And when he does, it won't be on the back of a donkey bringing peace. It will be on the back of a horse bringing judgment, bringing war. Revelation 19.11 tells us that he will return on a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And friends, that day is drawing nearer every second. Jesus came to do the Father's will, to bring many sons to glory. And likewise, the disciples were sent to do the Lord's will, to bring his message, the only message that brings hope, the gospel. Were they to do it on their own, in their own strength, in their own wisdom? No. He actually went with them. Invisibly, he accompanied them. He worked things out so that those who were appointed unto salvation would hear the message. We see that throughout Acts. We actually see it here in Mark. He says, go and find this donkey and just tell the people the Lord requires it. You think it's just coincidence that they actually were like, oh, okay. No, it's because the Lord had orchestrated this whole thing. All they had to do was be obedient. And he goes with us today the same way he would go with them. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age, he promised. So friends, go forth with confidence in that promise today. Proclaim the gospel. Share the gospel. Pray for the church in our country. Pray for your children. Pray for your friends. Pray for the culture. Pray for revival. But do it for the glory of the one who has saved us from hell and darkness and the wrath that we deserve. Our Lord, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we recognize here that it is so easy for us to have false ideas about what you have promised or even about who you are. And Lord, we, we realize that we can never fully grasp who you are. Uh, we're finite and you are infinite. How can our minds possibly comprehend? And so we realize, Lord, that every time we sin, it's because we have a deficient view of you. We, we have... We have somewhere where we fall short in our understanding of you. And so in the silence of our hearts, Lord, we confess our sins to you, remembering that you have promised that if we will confess our sins, you'll forgive us, you'll wash us clean. Not based on our goodness, but based on Christ's work that he accomplished that Passover week so long ago. Thank you, Lord, that by grace, through faith in Christ, we can have redemption in his blood. Thank you that you would not send us to hell forever. 
Thank you that you do not leave us just to our own preferences and devices. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness unto us, for your mercy. We pray, Lord, that as we consider this passage, as we consider the significance of those events, that our lives would be changed, that our devotion to you would be more whole, that it would be fuller and deeper and stronger, not on our own, but of the Holy Spirit's working within us. May we be more conformed to the likeness of Christ, who humbled himself and submitted himself to your will out of your great love for us. May that reflect, be reflected in our lives for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.